Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official podcast and radio program of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Chris Garaffa. And I'm your host, Rachel Hu, and we're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin, recorded late on Tuesday, August 2nd. You can hear this program live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on 99.5 FM if you're in New York City, or you can subscribe to this podcast to listen anytime by searching Covert Action Bulletin on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you can get podcasts. You can also click that little button right there if you're listening on our website and click subscribe and check it out there. We're very happy to provide early access to this podcast to all of our patrons, as well as early access to interviews and even exclusive interviews just for our patrons. Without our patrons, we quite literally could not make this podcast. So please, 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 uh, we would love to have everybody we can sign up and support us. We really appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about everything related to the situation brewing in Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi landed Tuesday, setting foot in Taiwan, which would make her really, I mean, one of the first U.S. politicians since Newt Gingrich visited Taiwan, who was part of an opposition party in the 90s. But really, no head of state and no member of the ruling party has visited Taiwan since 1979. So we're going to talk about why this is significant and why China's response, which is a response which has been very strong in terms of a response, is very measured, actually. We have a lot to get into, and we're very happy to be joined later by Ken Hammond, a professor at New Mexico State, who will get into all of this. But first, Rachel, there has been so much that has happened. One major thing is that you are back with us this week. We missed you last week, but you're <laughs> back. You uh, took a trip to Cuba as part of an international solidarity trip. And I think, you know, we want to mention we're going to do an entire special episode about this. So if you're really interested to hear what, what Rachel has to say in depth about Cuba, I certainly am. Make sure to look out for that on our podcast stream. But Rachel, what was the purpose of the trip? and talk about the timing of it and and what you saw uh, on this really significant trip that you went on. Thanks, Chris. I mean, I, I, I'm not ready to be back in capitalist hellscape America. Like, I'll tell you that. Um, it's really just not, it's not it for me. <laughs> like, like, you get back here and like literally everywhere you're going, everywhere you walk, you're just inundated constantly with advertisements. You're inundated nonstop with just buy this, buy that, be this, be that. I mean, it really is when you go to Cuba, you really feel like you can breathe. Like, it, it's, it's, it's a different type of breathing. It was mind boggling to me to be treated like a human being, to have your real whole person and self matter. I mean, that was like on an emotional level, I think the biggest thing that I felt kind of initially of just like, wow, like when you're sick there, you know, you call a doctor, like one person on our delegation ended up getting COVID and an epidemiologist visited her in her room. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever met an epidemiologist, but like to have like one just be sent out to visit, to check in on you, to see how you're doing. It like made me very emotional because when I had had COVID, I was struggling to even get an opportunity to get into the hospital, to be seen at all, to be told whether or not my symptoms are deteriorating in a way that are dangerous. Like, I mean, my oxygen was at 90. It was really low, which is pretty low for your oxygen. They said if it's below 90, like you got some of an emergency situation, like you got to get in there. And I was like, wow, you know, like I can't even really be seen. It was like an eight hour wait for a doctor just to come look at me and be like, all right, I think you're going to be all right. So that was just really emotional experiencing that. But I think most pressingly, like what I walked away with really feeling is that the blockade is genocidal. The U.S. blockade against Cuba is genocidal. There is no other way to talk about it. There is no other way to think about it. It is absolutely and utterly disgusting what the United States is doing to the people of Cuba because it's not lack of political will in Cuba. It's lack of resources. And the lack of resources are directly caused by the U.S. blockade. Like we visited a couple of different communities in transformation which essentially through different governmental programs have been revamped, including new stores, new like housing, like literally fixing up people's homes, building clinics, building pharmacies, building resources that people need. I mean, it's really been, it's an incredible undertaking for the state that has so little to give to its people to still give what it can. I mean, that was really the themes that we kept seeing throughout the whole trip. And in particular, after visiting some of these communities, it just became very clear that in Cuba, you really, as a person, 
are, are your needs are taken into consideration. Like the development plans were developed, literally physical development plans were developed with people walking around in the community in mind. Like, will this area to pick up food be convenient for moms who have to quickly run out and get something while they're watching their kids? Like things like that are not considered an urban development in the United States. They, our cities here are built for cars. They're not built for people. And that was a really interesting thing to see. But in particular, I wanted to talk about the blockade and the blackouts that we experienced, which were really intense. The blackouts happened at different times that were actually scheduled. Like in New York, we have blackouts all the time. We have blackouts literally everywhere across the country. Texas, I mean, it's severe. Like elderly people literally might die because they don't have, they're overheating and they don't have access to basic things that they need during blackouts. And when you're elderly, it can be a lot more challenging. And so in Cuba, they plan the blackouts because they know the grid system is overloaded. And because of the blockade, they literally can't get the parts that they need to upgrade the system. And also they can't get the oil that they need to keep electricity maintained because electricity is oil. I think we forget that, but it's real. Electricity is oil. And if Cuba can't get access to these things because of the blockade, what inevitably happens is that they won't have enough electricity. And without enough electricity, it becomes a serious strain on all of society. And so what they try to do to at least mitigate what they can is they tell people on the news every morning what time the blockouts are going to be. So that way you can plan your day and plan your health and safety around when the blockout is going to occur. Sometimes, of course, they still happen without warning, but they do everything they can. And we spoke with the head, one of the, um, the head of the electrical workers union in Via Clara when we were there in one of the provinces. Actually, it's the considered like the hometown of Che Guevara, which is a whole other conversation because he wasn't from there, but they embraced him so much. It was one of his first missions, I think, that he went on was there. But in Via Clara, the electrical, the, the president of the electrical union talked to us about, or I think that was his title, something akin to it, but he was a leader of the electrical workers union. And he was speaking to us about the fact that in Via Clara, they want to achieve full solar, 100% solar energy, 100% by 2030. That's their goal. That's their hope for the province. And it's a province that has a lot of industry. It's a very important place where they're producing many things for the country. And that's an aggressive goal. And I'm like sitting here and thinking like, man, like in the U.S., I've never heard a politician even try to promise 100 percent anything, even if they don't get there to say that that's what they want and that's what they aim for 100 percent. That's our direction is mind boggling. So I could keep going on, Chris, but these are my first kind of initial thoughts and emotions around what I was seeing. And I just think everybody who's a justice loving person in the world, the same way we talk about Palestine and the kind of human rights atrocities of Palestine, the blockade is a human rights crisis, what they're forcing on the Cuban people. The economic situation is very bad and it's all the fault of U.S. imperialism. And we for one minute should not forget that and be advocating to lift the blockade everywhere we can i think we we can just say straight up the blockade is criminal the blockade must end right now the united states government has no reason to keep this blockade going rachel i'm really looking forward to having a more in-depth conversation about your trip and hearing more about it but i think you know we have some really important news uh we're recording this of course as you said late on tuesday and Today, we know that Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan, as you mentioned in the introduction. So I think we should go immediately uh, into our guest. We're really happy to be joined by Ken Hammond. He's a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State and an activist with the group Pivot to Peace. Glad to be here. So happy to have you. So I have many questions. I, I have many thoughts of what's going on. For those of you who have not heard, and we've talked about it a little bit earlier, that Nancy Pelosi has landed. She's landed in Taiwan. This is a major act of aggression on the part of the United States. I mean, there hasn't been a head of state in Taiwan since 1979, as the U.S. has officially recognized the, the one China policy in China, stating that there is only one government in China, and it's, of course, mainland China. So for Pelosi to do this by recognizing Taiwan almost as a separate entity as a major act of aggression. So, Ken, I want your thoughts on this. I, I've read also the statements as well coming from the Chinese government saying if you play with fire, you get burned. I mean, that's a paraphrasing, but it's really a strong statement to say the least that China is in no way, shape or form accepting this. They're calling it for what it is, an act of aggression. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this and where we currently are. 
Well, Speaker Pelosi's visit to to Taiwan is is indeed it's a it's a very provocative, very reckless gesture on her part. I'm not sure exactly what she wants to accomplish by this, other than to antagonize China, indeed further antagonize China, and and apparently try to precipitate some sort of confrontation between the United States and China. You know, it is the official position of the government of the United States, which has been reiterated in numerous uh, statements, including by President Biden, just in his recent phone call with Xi Jinping, uh, you know, that that the United States officially recognizes that there is one China, Taiwan is a part of that China. And yet Speaker Pelosi, uh, you know, is, is just going over there and talking about independence, talking about self-determination. Uh, as if as if that has no no relevance, as if the official position of the United States government has no meaning to her. And I think that this reflects, well, it reflects a number of things. Of course, it reflects the overall larger dynamic of hostility and demonization that the United States government and, and media people have been projecting towards China for a long time now. But it also, I think, uh, this visit uh, certainly suggests that there's considerable disarray uh, within the Biden administration in terms of foreign policy. I mean, she is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. She's the third person uh, in, the, in the constitutional succession for the, for the presidency. I mean, really the second in the succession after the vice president. And so she's a, she is a very, very high government official, obviously a very high profile government official. She also, of course, has a history of provocative speech and actions towards China. So I think that, that the idea that she just sort of goes off on this, uh, on this venture, even though the president, the leaders at the Pentagon, various media figures, and, and uh, officials of foreign governments who have an interest in all of this, like Singapore and Australia, have said they don't think it's a good idea. They think it's reckless, but she just has plowed ahead. So on the one hand, it's part and parcel of this overall uh, uh, hostility posture that the United States maintains towards China. But it's also suggestive that, that, uh, that the government here, the, the, the Biden administration, <laughs> doesn't really have a consistent or coherent grasp on its own foreign policy. I was looking into this and I saw, I heard a great actually perspective this morning on another show that, you know, Newt Gingrich did visit Taiwan as Speaker of the House in, I believe it was 1997, but that was under Bill Clinton. So he, Gingrich, at least as a Republican, could portray himself as an opposition figure or, you know, as much as the Republicans are in opposition in the United States, uh, and it wasn't an official visit, but that is completely out the window when it comes to Pelosi visiting. And I think it's it's important too to talk about this trip or talk about this trip to Taiwan in the context of this entire trip that she's been making. She's been to she's planning Singapore, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia. You know, many many Southeast Asian nations. Uh, you know, certainly Japan. The government in Japan is not extremely friendly to China, and you know, in many ways has been extremely friendly to the United States. I traveled uh, actually to Japan in 2016 as part of the anti-war movement uh, to join a conference there. And one of the main topics was, you know, U.S. provocations against China. Of course, South Korea as well, long been a partner and a friend of the United States. Talk to us about the, the rest of this trip. You know, I, we're definitely going to focus on Taiwan, but I want to talk about the rest of the trip, too, because it has to be seen, you know, in that context. This wasn't just a overnight fly down to Taiwan and land. This is certainly a political trip. And I think that the choices of Singapore and, and Malaysia and other countries have to be you know, significant uh, for the U.S. government, but also the way China is seeing this as well. Sure. I mean, the, the this trip, leaving aside, in a sense, the, the Taiwan question, that seems like just this sort of egregious gesture on Pelosi's part uh, that, that, you know, is, is kind of self-promotion and like, a, I mean, she's 83 and probably going to be leaving politics before too much longer. I, I think this is some sort of swan song for her. I don't, I don't really know what, what she thinks she's doing. But the overall trip, um, you know, really is part of, a, of an ongoing effort by the United States to try to shore up its position uh, in the Western Pacific and around East and Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, American influence in that part of the world 
where the United States, as, as with much of the rest of the world, has been the hegemonic power you know, for, for many, many, many years, has been used to having its own way, has been used to just telling other countries what to do and having them basically have to comply with American directives. That situation has been changing. It has been, it has been American power there has been eroding. Uh, and part of that is the decline of capitalism in America, the decline of American imperialism as a global power. And part of it is the re-emergence of China, a China which is pursuing its own course of, of economic development and, and social improvement. Uh, you know, China is re-emerging within its, uh, its regional context uh, as, a, as, a, as an important player uh, in East and Southeast Asia and South Asian affairs, and indeed in, in global affairs more broadly. American elites view that, many in the American elites view that as a kind of zero-sum game, that if China is developing, if China is becoming more engaged, more participatory in, in regional and global affairs, that has to be a negative for the United States. They can only think of it in that kind of zero-sum uh, you know, somebody else's success is our loss. Uh, and so that has engendered a real sense of, of, uh, of frustration and, and almost desperation on the part of American elites to try to hold on to the power and the privileges that they've enjoyed for so long. So, you know, we saw President Biden go over to East Asia uh, recently, uh, not a very successful trip, unable to get some of the things accomplished that he had hoped to, despite his, of course, uh, rather hazy triumphalist rhetoric. Uh, you know, and 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 the, the situation in the in the Pacific with uh, with China having more influence in that region, you know, it's it's a situation that's driving American anxiety uh, <laughs> higher and higher, and so. This idea of you know visiting Singapore, visiting Malaysia, visiting South Korea, Japan, uh, the 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 image what it's supposed to to represent is uh, is America's ongoing engagement, and we're going to make sure everybody's on board, and we're all you know we're all in this together to try to block the rise of China and China being this sort of disruptive aggressor and all that. The reality, you know, is 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 pretty different, of course. First and foremost, because China is not the disruptive aggressor, but also because some of these countries, like particularly Singapore and Malaysia, they're not really interested in being American minions anymore. They're not really interested in just, you know, listening to whatever comes out of the White House or Congress and saying, you know, yes, indeed, we'll go along with that. They're charting their own courses. They're looking at their own futures. And I think that uh, that 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 independence, that ability of countries to think for themselves, to act for themselves, whether it's a fairly significant country like, like Malaysia that has a lot of economic influence in the region or a tiny island nation like the Solomon Islands. The United States is all freaked out because China's developing a relationship with the Solomon Islands. So these, you know, Pelosi's visit, Biden's visit before this, other things that will happen, Secretary of State Blinken going over, these are all efforts to try to maintain American influence in the Western Pacific and East and Southeast Asia. How that's going to play out, I think, uh, I think we all have a better understanding of that, that American power is indeed waning and China is indeed emerging, re-emerging really into a role which China traditionally occupied for centuries, if not millennia. Uh, you know, it, it's just a logical thing in that part of the world. But American elites are very fearful of that, and uh, and and so they, you know, they're indulging in these kinds of, of uh, ventures to try to try to, you know, ensure that that uh, uh, that they hang on to, to to their perks. Yeah, and it's kind of ridiculous, like you said. I mean, since ancient times, like China has been the epicenter of cultural exchange and trade in so many different ways of the old world. Like, it makes so much sense that inevitably the kind of relationships that China will have with other nations will resemble what it's been for thousands and thousands of years. And I think it's such an important point to really think about because the U.S. is artificially, in so many ways, the policeman of the world. I mean, the only reason why the U.S. rose to the power that 
it's in now, the hegemonic power that it holds is because all of Europe was decimated during World War II and had no ability to be the international defender of capitalism. And so the U.S. was the only country at the time that had the resources and ability to do so in the fight against the Soviet Union. And I think it's just a really important thing to understand that the U.S. is very artificially interfering in issues like in Ukraine. Like, how, why should what the U.S. says have anything to do with what goes on in, in the region there, in, in Eastern Europe, especially thinking about Russia's proximity to Europe? Why don't they have friendly relationships? They're quite literally neighbors. And the idea that the U.S.'s interests could get in between people who are essentially neighbors is so mind-boggling. Like, it's so clear to me how U.S. imperialism is is artificial in, in so many different ways, but it's very real. Its impacts are very, very real. And I think that one of the things I, I want to talk about, and I'm curious to hear more from you about, Ken, is thinking about specifically, I, I, I've seen some people go, well, I don't really understand what the big deal is. I don't really understand. She's a politician. She can go where she wants to go. You know, this isn't, this uh, China's overreacting. I've seen a little bit of people reacting with that of like, you know, why, what's the big deal here? But like you said on the tour, it's really insulting to say you're going to go to visit all of these nations, which are nations who have their sovereignty respected, and go and visit not with the head of the state of China. No, you're not doing that. You're visiting with people on a tiny island who ultimately do not have the ability in any way, shape, or form to assert their independence. And I think, and I want to hear from you more about this history, but I think it's really important in understanding this issue to not only understand U.S. imperialism, but also understand the history of Taiwan. Taiwan has always been a part of China. There's always been a legacy. There's always been a connection. And it's kind of really, to me, I don't think the people of the United States would accept if after the Confederacy, the the people, all the people that lost during the Confederacy, the secessionist government of the Confederacy, all went and lived on a tiny little island off the coast of Florida. If all of the people that lived on an island coast of Florida suddenly said, we are the rulers of this nation. I don't think the United States or anyone in the U.S. would take seriously that idea or respect it. These people lost the war in the U.S. Civil War. They lost the war. What right do they have to suddenly assert that they are the real, true leaders in any way? And that's in so many ways reflective, I think, of the history of Taiwan. So I'd love to hear from you, Ken, about this history, how Taiwan came to where it is today, and and how you see that that plays into the the role here in the situation. Well, I'm I'm really, really glad to hear you uh, invoke this this, uh, memory of the American Civil War. Uh, that's something I've written about recently as well, because, you know, when Americans cop this attitude, when American politicians cop this attitude about Taiwan, uh, that they're going to go and, and, and try to be the wedge in between Taiwan and the rest of China, uh, you know, if, if, if we cast our minds back, you know, we think about the situation in the Civil War, you know, you had this part of America, part of the United States, part of the Union. That, uh, that attempted to break away. There were politicians there who pushed that through and, and all that. And the United States, the, the, the federal government, the union went to war to stop that, to say, no, you can't secede. You can't split away. You know, this is a unified state. This is our country. This is our government. We're going to stop that. And they imposed a blockade on all the Southern ports to cut off the Southern economy, primarily the cotton economy from its global markets. Well, Great Britain, you know, had been developing its textile industry, its cotton textile industry, and was heavily dependent on the cotton that came out of Savannah and Charleston and New Orleans, right? And and Great Britain, there were politicians in Britain who wanted Britain to break its relationship with the United States government and support the Confederacy, support the independence of the South. Right. They didn't do that in the end. But imagine if the prime minister of Britain or or a cabinet minister of Britain had during the Civil War run the blockade, gone to Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, and said, we really support you. That would have been tremendously condemned by the Americans, by the American government and, and by the American people. Right. This is just what the United States is doing. We are intervening. In a, in a domestic, really, political relationship. Xi Jinping, as recently as last fall, made it very clear that from the perspective of the government of the People's Republic, from the perspective of the Communist Party, 
The issue of Taiwan is an issue amongst the Chinese people. It's an issue that comes down from history, and we can talk about that history in a minute, but it's, a, it's an issue that needs to be resolved by Chinese people on both sides of the strait in their own time, in their own way, without outside interference and, and meddling. And that's what the vast majority of people on Taiwan, even local opinion polls on Taiwan show that over 80% of people on Taiwan just want to retain the status quo. You know, they don't want independence. They don't want to, you know, poke a finger in China's eye. They're fine with just muddling along, let the situation resolve itself over time. It's an incremental thing. There've been ups, there've been downs. Let's, you know, let's let this develop amongst the Chinese people themselves. It's an internal affair that should be resolved by them. That's what the vast majority of people on Taiwan want. The people who are the most disruptive, the people who are trying to, to manipulate this situation in their own interest, of course, are the American politicians. Pelosi right now, most prominently among them. But to, to think a minute about, about Taiwan itself, you know, as you, as you say, Taiwan has been part of China. Well, Taiwan's been part of China a lot longer than there have been you know, European colonial settlers in North America. You know, Taiwan, uh, uh, you know, people from the mainland of Taiwan have lived, or the mainland of China have lived in Taiwan for, for centuries, if not millennia. And especially from, oh, let's say the 14th century on, there's been significant integration of the island and, and the adjacent mainland. It was under the Ming dynasty, the Qing dynasty, the Republic. Of course, it's taken away by Japan in 1895 and kept as a, as a colonial possession from 1895 to 1945. But in 1945, it's returned to China after the war, becomes part of the Republic of China, which was the government at that point. Um, so, you know, the position of Taiwan, uh, you know, as, as a part of China, as an integral part of China, something with, with a long history that, that's never really been disputed on either side of the, of the straits. Because of that legacy, because Taiwan comes back to China in 1945, the nationalist government, you know, assumed its, its political role there. And at first, people on Taiwan were, were very, very glad to be reunified with the rest of the country. They were like, this is great, you know, and they welcomed the nationalist uh, forces that came across after the Japanese had to withdraw and things got going. But the nationalists behaved, this is the Kuomintang, the, the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek and, and that crew, they behaved very arrogantly towards the Taiwanese people. Uh, of course, we, we know both on Taiwan and certainly extensively on the mainland, we know a lot about the corruption of the, of the nationalist uh, leadership and all this. It was not a, a very positive relationship. And when it became clear that, they, that the, the Kuomintang leaders were preparing to have Taiwan be their, 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 their fallback. People on Taiwan rose up against that and they said they didn't want that. And that resulted in massacres in February of 1947, uh, thousands and thousands of people killed, tens of thousands of people put in prison and martial law was imposed there that lasted down until the end of the 1980s. So, you know, this idea of Taiwan as some sort of bastion of freedom and, and all this stuff in, 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 in China uh, is just it's just kind of ludicrous. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the mythology that has been spun out now uh, because it served as an outpost, an anti-communist outpost during the Cold War. Uh, and, and there's a whole legacy of that, that, that that's in this background. But as we know, 1972, President Nixon goes to China. Wants to, re, you know, wants to reconnect with China, wants to uh, open a relationship with China. That leads over the next few years to the normalization of relations between the U.S. and China. China takes up its seat in the United Nations as one of the five you know, veto power members of the Security Council. Taiwan, which had held that seat up until that point, is said, you know, told to leave, you know, thanks so much, but we'll see you later. You're not really the government of China. These guys are, and now it's time to get real. So those things in the 70s led to the relationship that exists now, and that's recognized in the Shanghai communique in 72, in two subsequent bilateral agreements signed by the government of the United States 
and the government of the PRC that explicitly say there's one China, Taiwan's part of China. So there's this long history, but there's no question about what the present realities are and what the present legal situation is. And as I say, President Biden just reiterated that a couple of weeks ago. And now we have Speaker Pelosi just totally blowing that off, saying the United States doesn't have to honor its formal international commitments. We just do what we want. I can do what I want. America can do what it's what it wants. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. Well, that's certainly an attitude we see around the world. But when you're doing that with China, you're putting yourself into a very, let's say, fraught uh, situation. Yeah, no, the hubris is outrageous, Ken. Like, there's just certain like type of of arrogance that anyone in the United States government would have to feel to say that you're going to step toe to toe with China in this way and imagine that you come out on top. Like, it's very terrifying to see, really, that this is a, could be a provocation, especially if they move the ships in in the Taiwan Strait. Like, this could be a, a major provocation of war. I mean, we really can't think about it any other way. I mean, China's even on social media, the Chinese military was saying that they are preparing for war. That's happening. I mean, that's the reality. And I think one thing I want to say, and I know Chris has other thoughts too, but I want to just bring in here and I want to highlight one of the things you had mentioned, which I think is really important, that 80% of the people in Taiwan want to keep things as they are. I think it's really important to understand some of the political dynamics in Taiwan, that it's not monolithic. I mean, people, this generation, especially of young people, they're not their grandparents' generation. They have different attitudes. A lot of positive attitudes, especially, too, towards mainland China and the relationship that they have together. That's not everybody, but there's a lot of different thoughts and opinions. There's a lot of varied thoughts and opinions amongst the youth in Taiwan, especially around what it means to be a part of China. And it's not overwhelmingly people that want independence. That's not the situation. That is not on the radar of everyone. Of This is exactly what we're fighting for. So I just think it's a really important point. And I think that in the U.S., we get some of a distorted understanding, too, of what Taiwanese people think or people of Taiwan think really because it's, it's my, my husband's actually his family is all from Taiwan it's really interesting his father's a lot older he's like 80 and like his dad is really cool for a lot of reasons randomly he just believes very strongly like there is one China like he has a very strong belief in that about Hong Kong too he has a really strong belief just in general like I'm Chinese like I grew up in Taiwan and I lived in Taiwan but I'm Chinese and I think that it's just in the US we get a little bit of a, a weird skew on that when you talk to people whose families are from Taiwan. That's not monolithic or true. But I know, Chris, you have other things you want to get in here and say. Well, I wanted to just add, you know, that it seems so convenient for the U.S. government to pretend to have this weirdly short memory, right, when it comes to the history of Taiwan and China and it's their relations and, the, you know, over nearly a millennia. But when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, you know, you hear the, the you know, U.S. elite class chiming in about, you know, the Rus in 900 A.D. Uh, you know, it really seems just it's so convenient for them to pretend to have this this very short memory, you know, and, and talking about, you know, people kind of like the status quo. Right. I mean. We have U.S. politicians clamoring, you know, for an independent Taiwan and paying attention to what seems like a very small independence movement at this point, but then ignoring the call for the Puerto Rican people for, you know, the internal struggles in Puerto Rico between the calls for statehood and independence. I mean, that is a matter for the Puerto Rican people to decide, completely ignored, of course, by the United States, the struggle for representation in D.C. itself also ignored. Um, so I think when, when we're looking at this situation, we have to recognize that, you know, there are situations that certainly are not one-to-one -one correlations, and I don't mean to uh, compare them exactly, but there are situations where the U.S. is doing the exact opposite of what it's saying here. But I want to go back to talk more about the communiques, because I think they are such a critical thing to understand when it comes to having uh, you know, a clear understanding of U.S.-China relations, because as you mentioned, you know, they have formed the basis for the U.S. Uh, relationship with with China, especially around the, the you know, the, the situation of Taiwan for decades now. And both sides, you know, always fall back to this is the line. You know, there's one China. Taiwan is part of China. 
But at the same time, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, of course, being, you know, super aggressive. I think the United States government looking at some of the statements that have been put out, including Pelosi's own op-ed that the Washington Post published today, but also some of the Department of Defense statements have been extremely aggressive uh, regarding, you know, a potential, and they don't say it, but a, t- a potential undoing of the communique. So c- can you talk, Ken, a little more in detail about why these are so important and how they came about? Sure. I mean, there's there's a succession of communiques, um, 1972, 1978, 1979, uh, that that embody the the agreements that uh, the terms that both sides agreed to uh, in terms of, of saying what the relationship between the United States and China would be going forward. Right. I mean, in 1972, when President Nixon goes there, you know, U.S. had never accepted or acknowledged the legitimacy of the government of the People's Republic. You know, there was a very, very tempestuous relationship. We fought the Chinese in the Korean War. Uh, you know, there were the confrontations in the Taiwan Straits back in 1957, 1958. President Eisenhower considered the use of nuclear weapons against China uh, during some of those some of those instances. So you know, a long and fraught relationship. Of course, the, the, the American war in Vietnam uh, was in part uh, sold to the American people as a, uh, as a measure to stop Chinese expansionism, to stop the domino effect, to stop the spread of, you know, the red tide and all that. Uh, so, you know, there was a very, very hostile relationship between the United States and the People's Republic for a long time. But Nixon goes to China in 1972 in the midst of shifting geopolitical relationships with the Soviet Union and, and other parts of the world. And, 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 you know, let's put this, let's put this aside and put the relationship on a new basis. But that relate that basis had to be defined. It had to be spelled out. It couldn't just be, well, let's just, you know, let bygones be bygones. What was it going to be? There were still obviously differences of opinion to say the least between the leadership in China and the leadership in the United States. So they spelled it out. Uh, you know, they, they wrote it down, they spelled it out, and they, they negotiated to the point where both sides could accept it. And in, in, in 1972, of course, Foreign Minister Zhou Enlai, uh, President Nixon, they signed these documents, and, and that became the first step. And then, as I say, they were reiterated uh, at the end of the 70s, and, and they've been reaffirmed uh, in, in subsequent statements. So these are bilateral agreements and they include a number of provisions. I mean, the one China policy is, is only one of them. Uh, but that's very explicit, you know, that, that there's one China, Taiwan is part of China. Um, that, that, that question, the question of the status of Taiwan should be resolved by the Chinese people themselves. That's in there. That the United States agrees that it will not recognize the government on Taiwan as a national government, that the United States agrees that it will reduce its military assistance to Taiwan over the coming, over the ensuing years, and that in any event, it will not provide military assistance to Taiwan at a level above that which was in place at the time that the agreements were made. Now that has been thrown out the window for years. Congress, which of course does not make foreign policy, Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act as a way to subvert those agreements, you know, to allow Taiwan to maintain what they call representative offices uh, in, in, in Washington and a few other cities, to have, uh, you know, funny kinds of relationships with, uh, uh, with American government uh, uh, institutions, um, and to continue to, to provide uh, military assistance to the Taiwan local authorities. And of course, we've done that and have dramatically expanded the level, the technology, all the things that, that we sell to, to, to Taiwan. Um, and indeed, uh, as we learned uh, early in the Biden administration, uh, we've been sending secret military advisors, 600 secret military advisors to Taiwan. Uh, you know, so, so that's a flagrant violation of the explicit terms of these communiques and bilateral agreements. So 
we, there's a long track record. It's not that the Pelosi visit, you know, has fallen out of the sky. This is something that that is reflected in American conduct, uh, uh, you know, not so much in, in the first decade or so of, of the 70s, but but often since then, that that we say one thing, we have these formal commitments, we have these these obligations that we assumed as a responsible member. You know, Secretary of State Blinken likes to talk about the international rules-based order. And yet when those rules that we ourselves agreed to, when those rules become constraints on American actions, they just they just go by the boards, right? So that's the fundamental problem about the communiques is that they're very clear and they're very basic. You know, it's not it's not complex legalese. It's just it's it's laid out very clearly in them that uh, that these are the these are the grounds for the relationship. And formally, the American government continues to honor that. You know, uh, Biden said that in his call with Xi last November in his call with Xi a couple of weeks ago. The State Department has reiterated it. They reiterated it in response to questions about Pelosi's visit. And yet this formal verbal commitment is just blown by by provocations in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, by all the other rhetoric that comes out from politicians and, and, and pundits on a, on a regular, virtually daily basis, especially right now. So the communiques are, are the foundation, what should be the foundation. And really, all anybody asks, all that, that we ask, you know, I mean, the, the, the groups that I work with, like Pivot to Peace, uh, other people I know who are active uh, around these issues, all people really ask is that the United States honor its own word, be true to its commitments, and get back to a relationship based on those communiques and those bilateral agreements. Yeah, Ken, it's such an important point to bring up. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking a lot just about the U.S. imperialist strategy in China. Like, you're right, there's this formal level of what they're actually saying they want to do or what they actually believe or whatever it is they claim their actual attitude towards China is. And then there's the real level of what they're actually doing. I mean, you're so right that this Nancy Pelosi visit is not coming. It's not falling out of the sky. It's not out of nowhere. I mean, this is part of a long-standing U.S. imperialist campaign to really destabilize China. I mean, that's been their hope. They haven't succeeded in any way, shape, or form, but they've really been wanting to. I mean, it's why in the U.S., if you notice, the media diet around China in the mainstream media in the United States centers on Hong Kong, it centers on Xinjiang, and it centers on Taiwan, and Tibet sometimes as well. And there's a reason for that, because each one of these areas has independence struggles in them, and they're very small independence struggles that don't necessarily have any ability to take power in any way, but much like what the U.S. has done all around the world to destabilize countries and foment resistance within within people themselves to overthrow their government, it's not surprising to me that these are the areas that they select because they are weak points, supposedly, in the mind of the U.S. They still have not succeeded. After doing this for years and years and years, they have not been able to actually foment any sort of movement in China capable of really challenging and overthrowing the current system that exists. But that's what they hope to do and wish to do. Much like they wish to do all around the world in Cuba. I was recently in Cuba, and this was really a huge part of what we learned when we were there about the numerous CIA operations attempting to not only assassinate Fidel Castro, you know, the leader of Cuba, 637, I think, attempts on his life from the CIA. But it was it's deeper than that. I mean, they've been working in every way, shape and form to change the consciousness, to change and shape movements in, in Cuba to try to foment the, the idea that there's going to be a resistance or whatever to the government on the on the very ground level. But it hasn't been successful either in any way. I mean, the U.S. even introduced dengue fever and a ton of other different biological weapons. The CIA did this in Cuba. So it's not outside of their purview to start attempting on all these different ways to force supposed regime change. So I'd like to hear from you, Ken, a bit of the U.S.'s kind of covert action. What is the CIA and the U.S.'s covert action in China and about this greater strategy of trying to destabilize China by attempting to intervene in these areas, which the U.S. ultimately still has not any success in doing so? Well, the history of, of you know, the 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 clandestine side of the U.S.-China relationship is remarkable uh, in its own right. You know, the, what, what we see in the, on the surface, what we see in public is one thing. And, and of course, it's, it's, it's appalling enough. But when you go behind the, behind the curtain, uh, you know, the, it's, a, it's a long history. 
And it's one that that includes, you know, some some truly spectacular violations of international law, uh, but also continues right down to the present day in in a number of of guises. Uh, Back in the 1950s, the the Americans used Taiwan, actually, as a base for launching guerrilla operations all along the southeast coast of China. They also flew bombing missions. They bombed the city of Shanghai, China's largest city, uh, all the way down until 1952 on flights that went out of Taiwan uh, up to Shanghai, dropped bombs, and then, and then flew back. And this isn't something that's, you know, that's like a, a deep, dark secret. There are books about this written by former CIA agents who were so proud of what they did. There's a book called Raiders of the China Coast, it talks all about these activities in Fujian province, Zhejiang province, the flights to bomb Shanghai and all this, all the way through the 1950s. There's another book called Orphans of the Cold War about the training camp up in Colorado, a place called Camp Washington up in the mountains of Colorado, where Tibetan guerrillas were trained by the CIA. That went on all the way down into the 1970s. That program was only curtailed after Nixon's visit to China in 1972. They trained terrorists, basically infiltrators, to go into Tibet to carry out sabotage, to carry out assassinations, to carry out you know, clandestine uh, uh, propaganda operations and things like this, all through the 50s, the 60s, and it says right into the beginning of the 70s. Um, so those were, those were just flagrant, blatant violations of international law, uh, but the sort of thing that we know the CIA does all over the world on a regular basis. More recently, of course, the CIA has been involved, and it's not just the CIA, they're, they're, they're like the, the poster kids for this stuff, but there's a lot of other agencies involved in this, some of which are actually semi-public, like the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, And these organizations carry on both overt and covert operations, uh, funneling money, funneling resources of other kinds, uh, uh, sometimes actually literally stepping in and getting involved in uh, an organization, sometimes uh, infiltrating agents into China. Uh, Of course, this uh, uh, groups like this uh, played a big role back in 1989 with the demonstrations, the occupation of the center of Beijing. Uh, by anti-government demonstrators then, uh, and, and, and they certainly have continued to do so all the way down to the present day. We know that there was massive NED funding and engagement with the, uh, the riots in uh, Hong Kong over the last couple of years. Uh, we know that uh, uh, they're still involved, uh, not so much the NED, but CIA and other, other intelligence organizations. Um, in, in, uh, in trying to provoke incidents in, uh, in Tibet. Uh, and of course, they've been very involved in, uh, in trying to, to foster unrest, foment unrest uh, in Xinjiang. You know, uh, uh, and of course, Xinjiang is, is in some ways the most egregious example of just this, this kind of big lie mentality on the part of the Americans, as, you know, these charges of genocide uh, that are completely absurd. Uh, you know that, but if you if you say it over and over and over and over again, and if you have a couple of sources like Christian fundamentalist Adrian Zenz and the Australian uh, you know uh, Strategic Policy Institute, almost everything that gets said about Xinjiang comes from those two sources, or of course from Islamic separatist movements, uh, you know that that are promoting their own agenda. Uh, you know if you if you say that stuff over and over and over again. People start to think, well, you know, if there's smoke, there must be fire. There must be something behind this. And, and eventually it becomes kind of the, the conventional wisdom, the accepted understanding, because people in America have so little ability to gain direct access to knowledge and information about China. And so, you know, these, these operations, these activities, uh, you know, some of which are, are kind of dramatic, like, like you know, guerrillas and bombings and assassinations and all this stuff, some of which are much more, you know, insidious in the sense that they're just trying to erode both uh, support for the government within China and appreciation or understanding of China by, by people internationally. These are ongoing, they're well-funded, uh, and, and, you know, they're, and, and, and a lot of American politicians are quite proud of this. They, they're, they're very clear that what they want to do is subvert and overthrow 
the, the legitimate and widely popular government of the People's Republic. Your comments about Beijing made me remember, you know, in 1991, Pelosi visited Beijing. And, you know, many people, I think, don't know this, but she actually held a banner with two other representatives that said, to those who died for democracy in China. And she certainly wasn't talking about the Chinese Communist Party with that banner, right? I mean, it was such a provocation, just a clear provocation that we should also think about when we look at, I think, the you know, what her trip, you know, today. Um, but I, I want to move into the United States and what, you know, you're not just an academic, you're not just a scholar, you're also an activist, Ken, and you're a co-founder of an organization called Pivot to Peace. On Monday, there was a demonstration in front of... Uh, of Speaker Pelosi's office in San Francisco and a number of groups came together uh, to speak out and say, you know, we don't want Nancy Pelosi, who is, you know, wealthy and whose, whose district needs so much help going to Taiwan to provoke China. Um, could you tell us a little more about Pivot to Peace and what you all are up to? And then I want to play just a clip from from that rally as well. Sure. Um, yeah, Pivot to Peace, I think it's a, it's a great organization. It's a very exciting group of people to work with. It's, uh, uh, many of the people in Pivot to Peace are from the, uh, the Chinese community uh, on the West Coast. Uh, others, uh, you know, uh, joining in from, from uh, other parts of the country. I'm here in New Mexico. We have people in, uh, on the East Coast in various places that are involved. Um, and, and we've been together for a couple of years now uh, trying to raise awareness of, uh, uh, of the problems in the relationship between the United States and China and trying to push back against this, this hostile, aggressive attitude that's become characteristic on a bipartisan basis of the American government. You know, we, we chose the name Pivot to Peace as an alternative to the so-called Pivot to Asia that was announced back in 2011 by President Obama. Uh, which was the redeployment of American military resources and assets uh, to Asia with the, the pretty clear intent of trying to uh, contain China. This is a reversion to the old containment policies directed against the Soviet Union during the first Cold War. And so, you know, we want to pivot not to Asia, not to war, but pivot to peace. We want peace between the United States and China. Our view is that the relationship between the United States and China is, is arguably the most important uh, bilateral governmental relationship in the 21st century. And that, you know, China's rise, China's return to a, a position of, of responsibility and participation in global affairs, this is not something that's going to be blocked or thwarted or reversed by American trade sanctions like Trump imposed or by trying to cut off Chinese technology uh, and, 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 and block their own development of 5G or chip production. That's not going to stop anything. The rise of China, China's economic expansion now is the result of deep, deep structural changes in global economic life. And it's not going to stop. China is going to become, if it isn't already, the largest economy in the world as Chinese workers attain even just globally average levels of productivity, Chinese economy is going to be multiples of that of the United States. This is just a historically inevitable process. So for the U.S. to try to, to derail that is, is, it's, well, it's not a very rational thing to be, to be pursuing. And that's, that's part of what we're saying is that what we need to be doing you know, the reason we want peace is so that the United States and China could find ways to work together. How can we, how can we as Americans, how can we take advantage of this? How can we be part of this rising tide of prosperity, productivity, you know, the enhancement of the livelihoods of the Chinese people over the last 70 years has been a world historical phenomenon. Hundreds of millions of people have seen their lives radically improved just in, you know, in, in what they call the poverty elimination uh, campaign, uh, 800 million people plus have been lifted out of absolute poverty. That doesn't mean they're not still poor, 
doesn't mean that poverty has been eradicated in China, but they, they've been lifted up to a level where, where they can live decent lives and pursue their livelihoods, you know, in a, in a secure setting, right? What's so bad about that? What's so wrong about that? Why is that a threat to the United States? Can't we find ways to work together? Can't we find ways to share knowledge, information, technologies to develop, as the Chinese like to call it, common prosperity? a shared prosperity for the future. What's so bad about that? You know, what's bad about it, of course, is that it threatens the profitability of American capital, American corporations, and, and, and they don't like that. But let's try to get past that. Let's try to find a path to a future that isn't based upon the profitability of, of, of you know, big corporations, but is based upon what's in the actual interest of the American people and the Chinese people and people around the world, you know? So Pivot to Peace is, is about that. And what we've tried to do is work with other organizations. And as at this uh, demonstration, and I, I, I'm eager to see this clip, uh, you know, Pivot to Peace decided to, to call for something as, uh, you know, out of concern for this provocation that Pelosi was engaging in. San Francisco, which is where we have kind of our, our headquarters, I suppose, uh, obviously was the proper venue for that. So we reached out and, and Code Pink and Veterans for Peace and Women for Peace and uh, the Answer Coalition, a number of other groups joined in. And we had well over 100 people, 120 plus people uh, that gathered on, on very short notice uh, and, and were able to, to send this message. And it even got a little bit of coverage uh, by as conservative a, a, an outlet as uh, the New York Times. Uh, you know, they kind of downplayed the numbers. They talked about dozens of people, but that's that's OK. Uh, so, you know, our our objective is to, as we used to say back in the old days, raise consciousness to have people be aware of some of the more real facts about China. Seek truth from facts. Uh, and, and that China's not the threat. China's not an enemy. We don't want war. We don't want hostility. We don't want aggression. We want peace and we want a shared future. We want a future that we can all benefit from. Okay. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. Okay. Let's play this video. It's about a minute and a half long. I think for our listeners, just to set the stage, uh, there is a banner that says simply Nancy Pelosi canceled the trip to Taiwan. This speaker is Lillian Singh, a retired San Francisco superior court judge. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am disgusted with our Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. What kind of a game does she think she's playing? This is no game. This is not cat and mouse game. Nobody knows where she, whether she's coming or going, whether she's going to Taiwan or not. Hey, Nancy Pelosi, you are dealing with very serious things. Don't pull your shenanigans that you pulled on China before. We are up to you. Please do not play cat and mouse games. Do you remember, ladies and gentlemen, what happened in 1962? When the United States and Russia almost got into a nuclear war because of the Cuban Missile Crisis, United States would risk a nuclear war because Russia was so close to the United States. How do you think China feels with United States going to Taiwan. Come on, United States, please remember, other countries would like to be treated equally. United States and Cuba and Russia almost went into a nuclear war in 1962. We're in 2022. We cannot afford another nuclear war. We cannot afford any war. Is that right? Yeah, it was a really powerful clip. I mean, there's so much there to really get into. And I think it's a great place to kind of end our conversation, because honestly, I think that it's really important that we recognize what the risk here is. And I think that the speaker put it very succinctly. We are potentially hurtling ourselves forward towards a nuclear war, towards World War Three. And it's the United States, the, the unelected bodies in so many ways of the United States that decide what the foreign policy of the U.S. should be. 
I mean, the U.S. in every single way, shape and form, even though it points the finger out and says China's a dictatorship. I see one dictatorship here and I see the United States as a dictatorship in terms of its foreign policy. The U.S. unilaterally decides within its own machinations how foreign policy should look. But I think organizations like Pivot to Peace and I think justice loving people everywhere need to recognize that the people of the U.S. too don't necessarily agree with what the U.S. government does. And I think it's really important for us to to push on that, to force that conversation forward, that the people of the U.S. don't want war, the people of China don't want war, the people of the world don't want war, and that we have to be the ones to stand up and demand that the U.S. government really hears that loud and clear and that we build a movement to really show how deeply we need to stand against this war because of how dangerous it could be. So we'll keep seeing the situation unfold, but either way, we are so happy to have been joined by Ken Hammond in this conversation. Ken is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State in New Mexico State and he's also an activist with Pivot to Beast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. We're going to have to leave it right there, but before we go, if you like what you heard today or you want to ask your own questions to be taken up on air, go to patreon.com slash covertactionmagazine, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash covertactionmagazine. Become a patron to get early access and exclusive content just for our patrons. Well, well, anyway, you've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Chris Garaffa. And I'm your host, Rachel Hu. And if you miss any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you can find podcasts. Just go ahead and search for Covert Action Bulletin. We are all out of time for today. Thank you again to our patrons for making this podcast possible. We will see you all next week.